Welcome everyone to the Elevator Pitch, an ATS Breathe Easy podcast. On this podcast, we talk to the scientists behind innovative new ideas to get their elevator pitch, the big picture story behind their work. Importantly, we explore how these studies can change the way we care for patients in the ICU. Dr. Shuba, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Matt Shuba, and I'm in a medical intensivist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm also associate program director for the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship there. On this podcast, we usually discuss a specific study or publication. Today, we're going to be talking about something a bit broader, a philosophy of critical care called zentensivism. Our listeners may be familiar with this concept, and this approach to critical care resonates with many of us. Dr. Shuba, could you give us your elevator pitch for zentensivism? Zentensivism is the practice of minimally invasive, maximally attentive critical care. The term itself might feel like a contraindication since it combines zen and intensivism, but a zen approach might be the perfect counterbalance to the reflexive and excessive care that is often provided in the intensive care unit. It's meant to work against common traps that we're all susceptible to, such as normalization fallacy and sort of not fully exploring what the patient's goals of care really are. Does this mean that Zentensivists can't provide invasive care or aggressive care, or is it dangerous to default to a less is more mindset? We really don't think so. This practice model requires clinical expertise to honed over years in order to understand natural history of disease and when it is permissible to do less. Accordingly, it requires risk tolerance and an understanding of the effect sizes and potential downsides of medical treatments. This allows us to stretch our understanding of what is acceptably normal versus harmfully abnormal and when intervention is really necessary. Most importantly, Zentensivism is fully humanistic in its focus, and the less is more mindset is meant to preserve dignity and consciousness in the intensive care unit whenever possible. This can lead to shared decisions on limitations on invasiveness of care via early goal-directed palliation or even time-limited trials. In all, Zentensivists realize that doing less takes more effort, but that doing so is a moral imperative. Thank you for that excellent summary. You mentioned acceptably normal, and I think that's a a phrase that I saw in uh, one of the other publications as well, abiding abnormality. In terms of patient physiology in the ICU, a big question is what is abnormal versus adaptive? You know, we've established permissive hypercapnia, an acceptable level of abnormality in PCO2. What other physiological processes should we be thinking about in terms of permissive abnormality? I think what we've we've learned some things over the last few years, especially in where we can stretch things such as uh, goals for blood pressure and septic shock. Uh, we've learned about tight versus liberal glucose control. And there's probably a, a, a plethora of other uh, areas that these principles could apply to. We need to do more work from a research infra- from a research standpoint to understand where these gaps and where these opportunities are. And that's a little difficult to tease out because I think, you know, some of these things such as the, you know, differences in blood pressure goals, we can study in randomized control trials, but certain things will be either difficult or impossible to randomize patients into. So that in in those cases, we might have to rely on observational studies uh, with really robust methods to try to tease out those differences. Yeah. I think that really highlights some of the challenges with developing like the research infrastructure to set these boundaries of what's abnormal versus adaptive. Absolutely. As far as, you know, one of the things that abiding abnormality makes me think of is that we should let things be that we shouldn't be correcting. Along those lines, it kind of allows us to focus more on the essentials in ICU care. 
Dr. Shuba, could you talk about um, essentialism and what you consider essential to the care of the ICU patient? The good news and bad news about critical care medicine is there's a really limited amount of evidence that is high quality and something that we should really be considered doing on every patient. These are things like early antibiotics and septic shock, low tidal volumes and ARDS, and you know th things that we traditionally think of. There's a large gray area in how you know strictly and tightly we need to manage all these other issues. Uh, so I think the things that are most essential are things that have been repeatedly demonstrated to have uh, you know consistent or large benefits for our patients, and then things that involve us removing unnecessary interventions from patients whenever possible. And this is where things like the A to F bundle come into play. Uh, just focusing on trying to get patients back to normal as much as possible, removing, removing sedatives, removing lines, getting them moving, and making sure families are properly engaged. And in your practice, how do you educate trainees on these essentials, the things that have been proven over and over versus just all the other things that are going on in the ICU? It takes a lot of metacognition and sort of standing at the bedside and explaining how we got where we are in intensive care medicine and and those things that, that we that we think are important. It's difficult because sometimes the things like the A to F bundle will fall onto, let's say, a checklist, and that's not necessarily the most alluring part of care for a trainee. Those are the things that have been uh, shown to make measurable differences in outcomes for patients and things like making small tweaks and you know hemodynamic or ventilator adjustments don't necessarily have the, that strength of evidence. It's still important to learn those things because in the end, if you can, let's say, make the ventilator work better for the patient, you may be able to sedate them less uh, as, as an example. Um, but really showing uh, that the the simple things and the things that have been, you know, sort of well-trod and proven are, are what we need to focus on first. And then once we have accomplished those essential goals, then we can move on to buffing the physiology and, and you know, making tweaks to try to uh, optimize the rest of the, the values that we see in the patient. One of the terms you mentioned was also risk tolerance. Could you describe what you mean by risk tolerance? Risk tolerance is something that may be sort of inherent to all of us and how much uh, risk we're able to tolerate in the things we do and don't do for our patients. This might be that extra test, that extra CT scan, that extra procedure um, with the thought that adding things necessarily makes risk less likely, uh, which is to say, if I miss a diagnosis, I've necessarily done the patient harm, even if that patient, even if that diagnosis was extremely unlikely in this case. And I think to some extent, this is something that is intrinsic in all of us. Some of us are more risk tolerant than others, but ways that we can learn to adjust our risk tolerance really come from number one, from bedside mentorship. And this comes for, from the, the physician or the person leading the team to the trainees and to the rest of the team. Um, but also just understanding sort of base rate statistics and Bayesian reasoning and how likely is it that this test is actually going to affect uh, the way that I manage the patient. I think those are the things that need to be taken into consideration when you're weighing risks and benefits of, of treatments uh, or tests in individual patients. So to me, it uh, kind of sounds like risk tolerance is adjusting your reaction to the situation, decrease the reactionary nature that we probably tend to have. Yeah, I think that that is really the case. And one, one principle of uh, that mitigates that a little bit is understanding how beneficial the things we have to offer actually are. Um, as we know, many of the things we do in critical care, particularly if you think about medications we give, they really have small, measurable uh, potential upsides. Um, whereas we might consider them in our minds to have huge potential benefits. And then if we think we withhold them, we're doing harm. And we often don't think about potential unintended consequences that come with uh, addition of other test treatments or procedures. 
How do you think about educating trainees in terms of risk tolerance, just from the perspective that, you know, coming out of uh, residency, I think I was very reactionary, you know, reacting to the crashing patient and enacting the mantra of don't just stand there, do something. And so I wonder if it's possible for a trainee to actually bypass this reactionary stage or if it's the reactionary stage is a necessary part of growth. I think there's uh, a couple of things to consider. One is we breed clinicians to uh, behave in this way because the majority of multiple choice tests are end with doing something to a patient. The rare question that has continue observation, not only is it unusual, but it ends up usually kind of being the right answer on those questions, which is pretty funny. But we're, we're primed for this. We're saying, you know, we get this feedback from the people who train us or from nurses and respiratory therapists. They say, this thing is abnormal. Please do something about it. And that is, that's the world that we live in. We assume that means that every piece of stimulus requires an intervention. To some extent, that is normal. And uh, it's been at least normalized in the environment that we work in. It's probably better for trainees to err on the side of caution uh, until they gain the expertise to understand when they can sort of sit back and do less. Now, the, the, the best answer, which would be the hardest thing to do, would be to have a conversation with somebody uh, who's supervising them that, that's a little bit more minimalist uh, in their mindset, and then they can learn these things directly at the bedside. But at the beginning, it would be hard to say being an early intern or an early fellow and, and try to immediately enact minimalism when you don't really have a clear understanding on natural history of disease and how likely each treatment is or, or withholding of the treatment is to benefit the patient. So it's something that I think needs to come with years of experience, but you can certainly start to operate in that mindset early on. You just need to be able to very verify it with somebody that's uh, responsible for your education. I think that's an important point for the trainee not to just jump into this minimalist mindset. Maybe the answer is, like you said, having one-on-one bedside expert feedback. Dr. Shuba, in your paper in the Annals of ATS, you provided a clinical vignette that really illustrates the two different pathways to the extreme. Um, And you described this prototypical ICU admission, 74-year-old female, multiple comorbidities, hypotensive, hypoxic, tachycardic, tachypnic, abnormal labs, chest x-ray with a pneumonia, classic sepsis patient. Can you describe how this story may play out with the reactionary approach as opposed to the sentencivist approach? Absolutely. So I will preface this to say that these the uh, sort of dichotomous approaches that are demonstrated here are really for illustration purposes, but I think we've all seen that reality exists somewhere on a spectrum between these two approaches. So in this sort of reactionary, maximally invasive uh, mindset, you get this patient who's clearly in septic shock with hypoxic respiratory failure. As the team lead, maybe you enter the room kind of at a higher level of anxiety, you're shorting, you're shouting orders, you're anxious, you're more directive, not really collaborative with the, with the people you're working with. You see the the patients sort of has, uh, you know, doing okay from a respiratory standpoint. They're on a non-rebreather mask with marginal saturations, a little tachypnic. The fellow says, well, they're probably going to tire out, so you probably should just go ahead and intubate them preemptively. And in the process of being preemptively intubated, they uh, develop hypotension. Then they receive crash central line and arterial line. in the process of all this, we were, before we we got this train started, we were told in handoff that this patient wanted everything done, but we didn't really quite explore that. From there, we have this patient who's uh, 
perhaps become more unstable at our hand. And now we start to review labs and vital signs. And we look at all the red numbers in the electronic medical record. And we decide that the best thing we could do for this patient is to try to force all those things to normal. Now I have an intubated patient with pneumonia. So what do I need to do next? Maybe now I'm, I'm moving towards a CT scan or a bronchoscopy and really focused on technology. Meanwhile, I have a you know deeply sedated hypotensive patient on vasopressors. Um, this invasiveness tends to beget further invasiveness. Uh, more organ supports are added, more invasive interventions are added. And in the end, what I've done is potentially prolonged suffering given a higher risk of complications and certainly a lower risk, lower chance of consciousness and dignity for this patient. And at the beginning of this case, you heard about this, the, the backstory of this patient, you know, this patient's survival odds were low, and we're just not sure that we made any uh, headway in, in, in modifying that trajectory. The alternative pathway or the Zentensivist pathway would involve a very different approach to the patient. So the patient arrives to your ICU, you're here that they want everything done, but you'd really explore that and, and try to delve into what that really means for this patient. You offer early palliation for the patient to, the, to them themselves, to the family. You start to talk about time-limited trials. Uh, your manner is warm, you're collaborative, you're firm and measured in what you're saying, but you're, but you're not being forceful. Uh, we try to tread lightly and swiftly. So you still want to resuscitate this patient quickly, but you try to do it in the most minimally invasive way possible. So we're talking about quick antibiotics, maybe running peripheral vasopressors, talking about high flow nasal cannula, and maybe things like point of care ultrasound instead of more invasive studies. You start to see the same accumulation of, norm, of abnormal labs and values return. You realize uh, that some of this is, um, there is some abnormality here that may be compensatory. You may not actually be able to, uh, or, or other um, values, you may actually not be able to coerce, coerce to normal. You're intentionally passive and you're employing Bayesian reasoning to try to make decisions about what the most likely diagnosis is and how likely each additional test and treatment is going to be. You focus on the ABCDEF bundle and, and really start to think about tincture of time. You think when the patient first arrived, you made the right interventions and, and you try to allow uh, natural history uh, under, the, under appropriate treatment to play out. And all, all along the way here, the patient has the opportunity to improve. They, they still may deteriorate. They still may end up in the same place the other patient uh, was going to really having a low odds of survival but you're really focused on avoiding suffering and alleviating it whenever possible. So you go back and you have further conversation with the patient, the family, offer them comfort care, engage in shared decision-making. And in the process of doing this, you've maximized the dignity of the patient and their consciousness. You've minimized pain and complications whenever possible. Again, the survival odds of the patient may not have changed from the other pathway, but you can see how differently uh, we may have arrived to the same place. That's excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think both pathways very likely lead to the same outcome, but it definitely highlights the potential difference in providing humanistic care. You mentioned red numbers in the electronic health records. So I think that's a good uh, segue into um, the era that we practice in and, uh, you know, with EHR, which allows us to digitize the presence of the patient. When someone's checking in on a patient, often that means they're looking at the records to see new data that's being inputted into the medical records. How do you think the EHR and digitization of our patient affects our ability to be maximally attentive and minimally invasive? I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think there's definite advantages to it. 
Uh, in our health, in our EHR, for instance, uh, I can pull up the patient's monitor uh, in the chart. So I can actually look at their respiratory rate, their vital signs, their waveforms and things like that. And so if, if I'm in a position where I can't be at the bedside, I can still be sort of maximally attentive in that way. So that those are, those are areas that where, where this could be beneficial. Um, you could see similar benefits, benefits in telehealth, right? Where you have somebody that's, uh, you're, you're maybe not physically in the same space as, maybe not even in the same country as, but you're able to sort of keep, keep an eye on them in that way. And even maybe with some video feedback. The downside to this is you don't want to over-focus on the e-patient for the sake of the, the actual patient. And there's, there's a lot of advantages to this. I think for, for the patient's sake and for our sake, it's important to be able to be at the bedside and, and uh, communicate with them and bond with them. But, you know, there's certain things that you can learn by being in the room that you can't learn from looking at uh, somebody's, you know, vital statistics. You don't know what their general appearance looks like. You don't know what their skin perfusion is like. You can't see the ventilator. There's a lot of other ways that you just can't sort of take in the full picture. So sometimes I think as much as I love all the data that's available to me in the electronic health record, sometimes there's nothing more beneficial to try to get a handle on what's going on with the patient than just literally pulling up a chair, sitting in front of them talking with them if they can speak, and then just sort of taking in the physiologic data around you. Completely agree. Yeah, the general appearance of the patient, the mental status of the patient, ventilator mechanics, so much that you get from walking into the room. Dr. Shuba, could you tell us about your plans for the future? Sure. So I think when I, when I think about a Zentensivist framework, one, one, one of the ways I normally introduce Zentensivism when I, when I speak on this topic is it's a holistic approach to the art of caring for the critically ill patient. And I think that offers us a lot of advantages as, as healthcare uh, providers. So there's the one hand where, yeah, ho holistic approach to, if you tell someone that you're taking care of, you want to take a holistic approach to them, that's fantastic. Right? Everyone would love to hear that. You're thinking of me as a person, not just a collection of physiologic values. But the other thing is there is this inherent art uh, within critical care medicine that comes from us having heterogeneous groups of patients that we don't necessarily fully understand how to best treat. And this is where I think that extra time at the bedside, uh, sort of um, learning the physiology and understanding what ways in which patients may deviate from, from the norm and, and ways that they may need their care sort of customized. So I think that that comes into the art of it as well. It's not just the art of providing thoughtful humanistic care, but it's also the art of allowing us to learn everything we can about a patient to try to nudge their nudge them in, in the right direction. So I think from a Zentensivist standpoint, what I'd like to see is uh, I'd like you know obviously I'd like to see this grow. I'd I'd, I'd like other other physicians that I work alongside or that are uh, across the world to, to think about the ways in which this might benefit their practice. I think it has the potential to make our jobs more rewarding and more enjoyable in addition to being better for the patients. So I think when I think about the future for me from as intensivist perspective, I just like to see this grow and really learn ways to integrate this in the way we, we uh, train people. In addition, I do think there is space, uh, as we alluded to early, for as intensivist research agenda when we start to learn about what kind of abnormals can be tolerated, who can tolerate them, and in what situations can they be tolerated? What do we learn from people with care limitations about who needs to, you know, who needs invasive ventilation and who doesn't? Um, and, and just kind of thinking about the world uh, from, from that framework might allow us to safely do more to patients and, and give people who have hesitation about doing less uh, a little bit more um, motivation to do so to say, to clearly demonstrate that these things are safe and in some cases maybe even preferable. Dr. Shuba, thank you for your insights on this holistic approach to critical care and for being part of the Elevator Pitch podcast. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thank you all for tuning in to the Elevator Pitch Podcast.